0: The following lesson is brought to you by the Church of Christ on McDermott Road. Let's go ahead and start with a prayer and then we'll get into our lesson. Most Holy Father, we are incredibly thankful to be alive and to have the blessings of all that we have in Jesus. Father, we are so incredibly thankful that you have redeemed us and saved us, that you've washed us clean in your Son's blood that You have given us Your Spirit, and that You love us as Your own children. Father, we pray that as we examine tonight what Your Word says about being human beings created in Your image, we pray that we do so in a way that is edifying and glorifying to You, Father. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, let's review real quick for those that haven't been here and for um, just our own memory's sake. Uh, Because as we've been saying, these lessons kind of build on each other. We don't want to just cover something and have it stand independently. We want to keep kind of building on the knowledge that we gained the week before and keep kind of building our understanding. Because every language is a little bit different in how they express what it feels feels like and what it means to be a human being, right? And so uh, we're talking specifically these past few weeks about what the Hebrew, what the Old Testament says about being a human being and how they express those thoughts and how those are a little bit different than the way we tend to express those thoughts in English. Uh, But but then we're going to move next week, hopefully, transition into the Greek in the New Testament and then kind of examine how that how those same thoughts, because you have Jewish people, right? The apostles, for the most part, with the exception of Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, um, you have these Jewish people who think uh, like we're talking about tonight, but yet are expressing those same thoughts carried along by the Holy Spirit, um, expressing those thoughts in a new language, in Greek. And so now we have a little bit different vocabulary that we kind of have to... uh, understand through that vocabulary. So uh, let's let's kind of review. Number one on your worksheet, you are a living, the Hebrew word is nefesh, and so what else could go there? What's somebody say? Being, yes, you're a living being, that's a good word. Soul, you are a living soul, right? You're a living creature, you're a living one, you're a living being, you're a living soul. The very most basic meaning of what The Old Testament translates as soul is being, right? It's a living being. Uh, So you are a living nefesh. You are a living soul and you are a living soul with a, what did we talk about last week? A ruach. ruach, Good. Yeah. The Hebrew ruach. So you are a living nefesh with a ruach. And how do we uh, translate that? A ruach is what? Wind or breath in a literal sense, right? The literal meaning of ruach is breath. What's the symbolic or metaphorical um, interpretation of that? Spirit. Spirit, right? A spirit. So you are a living soul with a spirit. Okay. You are a living soul with a spirit or you are a living nefesh with a ruach. Okay. Number two, the Old Testament idea of spirit or ruach is a metaphor that means the invisible part of you which animates your behavior right so in a literal sense your ruach animates your body right in a literal sense your your breath that fills up your lungs it animates and gives life to your body but in a symbolic sense your ruach gives animation to your behavior Uh, it it drives you it it is your your inclinations your will uh, that which drives you towards a certain end a certain behavior number three you can and should what Control. control or rule over your spirit right you should control or rule over your spirit, which actually kind of brings us back to what human beings were designed to do. Human beings were designed to be rulers, right? We were designed to rule and have dominion. There's a few more seats up here, y'all, if y'all need some. There's three, four, five right up. I know it's daunting in the front section, but especially with me towering over. Um, Okay. So... um, You can and should rule over your spirit, but number four, this even has become a frustrating task because of what? Sin, right? Sin makes ruling over everything a frustrating task, doesn't it? Our ruling over creation has kind of been thwarted by sin, right? But because we tried to seize control of the knowledge of good and evil, our eyes were open, we had an awareness... I've been toying with that word in my head this week, awareness, an awareness of good and evil. That's really what the tree, the fruit brought about, wasn't it? It was an awareness. Their eyes were open, right? Their eyes were open. They saw things for what they were. They were ashamed. They saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. So um, that that sin, that rebellion against God, that transgression um, has caused enmity, It's caused animosity and conflict between human beings and other human beings, between human beings and nature, between human beings and most importantly God. Right? And so it has even become. There's a couple more seats up here, guys. If y'all want them, Um, it's that that job of even ruling over our spirit, the invisible part of us that animates us towards something. That has even become a frustrating task. Okay. So last week, we kind of toyed around with the idea of the heart, right? So we said, we said that in English, and we do this with brain too, although the, in the Hebrew, that, that's not really a body part that they used in a symbolic way, okay? Or even really talked about in the Bible, uh, the brain. Uh, they talked about the kidneys, interestingly enough. Uh, so sometimes when your Bible says, in my innermost being... Uh, The word there is kidneys, in my kidneys. Uh, We we don't use that metaphor in English. Uh, You'd you'd be looked at pretty funny if you said, in my kidneys I really care about this situation or whatever. it would say, hmm, I don't know what you mean by that at all. But we do use heart that way, don't we? We use heart both in a literal sense, the blood pumping organ in our chest, and we use heart in a symbolic sense, uh, as a metaphor. We don't really mean that it has anything to do with the blood pumping organ in our chest. We just mean that in a symbolic way. And we probably get that from the Hebrew idea. We get that from the ancient writers who also thought of the heart both literal, they knew what a literal heart was, but they also talked about it in a metaphor, as a metaphor or as symbolism. Uh, now, why though do you think that we would talk about the heart this organ that we can feel in our chest, I mean, everybody knows intuitively, you don't have to be a doctor to know that you have a blood pumping organ in your chest, right? Why is it that you would choose that to be a symbol of what we've chosen for it to be a symbol of? Why? What's intuitive about that? I, I don't know about the kidneys, but okay, life, yeah, there's life, Yet yeah, life and death, absolutely. It's the center, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of in our core. What what happens when you get excited about something? Yeah, absolutely. Your heart starts beating faster, right? When you're in love, right? Your heart starts beating fast. It makes sense, right? It makes sense intuitively that we would say, my heart beats for you, right? Because literally, physically, that's what happens, right? I mean, when you're in love and you're you're excited about something, your heart races. Or when you're angry, when you're passionate, when you're scared or frightened, all of these things things have a physical um, tie to our body, right? So so it makes sense that we would say, yes, my heart is literally beating faster, but in a symbolic way, I'm talking about my emotions. I'm talking about my passions. I'm talking about my desires. So uh, in English and Hebrew, the idea of heart can be literal or it could be a metaphor. So it can be literal or it can be a metaphor. we're not going to talk about the literal meaning of the word heart because we know what that is and they knew what that was. Uh, we're going to talk about the metaphor and how the English metaphor is a little bit different. There's some overlap, but it's a little bit different than the Hebrew metaphor. Um, we typically speak of heart symbolically as the seat of our what? Emotions, Emotions right? In fact, we, we kind of explored that a little bit last week. We said that what, what do you do with your head? You think, and what do you do with your heart? You feel, you feel right? I mean, we, we pretty much know that. And we, we try to make a sharp distinction between those two, don't we? We try to say, hey, that's a, that's a head thing, or that's a heart thing, or you need to start using your head more than your heart. And so we've really tried to delineate between logical thinking and emotional feeling. That's not the distinction that we find in especially the Old Testament. We start to get into the Greek, there is a little bit of that type of delineation. But in the Old Testament, that's not the delineation that's made. That's not the distinction that's made. Um, In fact, there's a ton of overlap. But let's think through some of the ways that we use uh, the heart metaphor or some of our idioms in English. So we say, tell me what these things mean. He had more heart than anyone else on the team? Okay, desire, drive, determination. determination, courage. I'm glad somebody said that, courage, right? Courage, determination, drive, passion, desire, all those we, we say that somebody on a team, if I had said you know a soldier, then you, your mind probably definitely would have gone to courage. Right? We say he had a lot of heart. We mean those things that we just listed off. Um, she seemed to be speaking from the heart. Honesty. Sincerity, honesty. Yeah, sincerity and honesty. So we use our heart as a metaphor for courage, passion, drive, sincerity, honesty. What about if I say my heart is broken? Sadness, right? Uh, sadness, uh, bitterness, um, despair, it's almost hard not to say heartbroken, right? I mean, that, that, that has become, we almost don't even think of it as a metaphor anymore, do we? When we say, heart, I'm heartbroken, we don't stop and say, oh, I'm, I'm being symbolic there. I don't literally mean my heart is you know, cracked or something like that. We don't even think about the fact that we're using a metaphor. It's just become an idiom, and that's the way we talk. And we know exactly what we mean. When we say someone had a lot of heart, you don't think, oh, well, how big was their heart? You know, you, you don't think about it being literal, but you don't even think about it being a symbol. You just know that's exactly what you mean. Um, how about if I say from the depths of my heart? I, okay, yeah, that could absolutely be sincerity. What else? Feeling, Absolutely. And we mean that as it's, it's the very core of me, right? From the depths of my heart, right? I, I, I mean this, or I'm saying this, or I feel this at the very core of who I am. So we mean heart as being, the, somebody said that earlier too, that, that it's the very core of us. It's the very center of, in fact, we say that if we said, um, not even talking about a human being here, but if we said the heart of the island, right? That that the volcano is—I don't know why that came to my mind—but the volcano is at the heart of the island. We mean center, and isn't that funny? I mean, our heart isn't literally in our center, right? I mean, it's kind of offset on the left-hand side. It is the left-hand side, right? Uh, so it's kind of offset, and it and it's up here in the top. It's not like right here in the middle. Kidneys might make more sense, I guess, that way. But um, but but so so but we mean core. We mean center. We mean the very heart of something. Um, she is very tender-hearted. What do we mean by that? We say somebody's tender-hearted. Sweet. what's yeah. Sensitive. Sympathetic. Caring. They, they get hurt easily. They get their feelings hurt easily. Yeah, absolutely. So that could mean something kind of with a positive connotation. It could kind of mean with a negative connotation. But again, it's not literal. We're not saying that their heart is easily injured like their literal blood-pumping organ. We mean that symbolically. Um, she had a change of heart. What does that mean? Now, isn't that interesting? Now, wait a second. I thought you said a minute ago that this was your mind and this was your heart, right? But when we say she had a change of heart, it really, it's it's synonymous, isn't it? With changed her mind. Now, that's interesting. And I, I thought of that when I was writing these idioms down. I thought. That's interesting, because most of the things that we say in relation to our heart have to do with our feelings, emotions, and that we kind of try to keep them away from our logic center, right, or what we think of as our logic center. We try to keep them away from mind. But in that sense, we really do mean she changed her mind. She's thinking something different than she was before. And we could mean it more emotionally, right? She had a change of heart, meaning she doesn't feel the same way about this decision that she felt before. But do you see, there is so much overlap between our thinking and our feeling. We try to draw this sharp line in the sand like there's this huge delineation and where you can like tell in the moment, oh, I'm not thinking right now, I'm feeling. This is all heart and emotion and it's not head and logic and mind. Uh, It's really hard to draw a line in the sand and say, well, did she change her mind? Or did she change her heart? I want to know. What's the truth here? Is it a change of heart or is it a change of mind? The answer is yes, right? The answer is yes. It's both. Um, Last one, he knew the song by heart. Now that's interesting. Memory. Memory. Ah, that's another mind one, isn't it? When we say he knew the song by heart, we mean that it has become a part of him and he didn't even have to think about it anymore. Maybe that's kind of what we mean by that symbol. I don't know. But, but we're saying that he has memorized it, right? And, and, but if you say, where does memory work happen? Would, if, if I say, does memory work here, happen here, or does memory work happen here? You'd say it happens here, right? In your head. People listening to the audio aren't going to have any idea what I'm doing, right? But you, you, you would say that, that memory work happens in your head, not in your heart. But then we use this symbolism that he knows it by heart. Again, I think that we can recognize that even in our English symbolic use of the word heart, there's some overlap between mind and heart, or, or between thinking and feeling. Um, and again, we're not saying that the human heart is responsible for our emotions. We're not saying it's literally seated in our blood pumping organ in our chest. Um, Nor are we saying that our drive or our ambition or our inclinations is literally wind in our chest, right? Those are real physical things that we're using in a symbolic way to talk about our human experience, right? To talk about the fact that something took the wind out of our sails. In other words, our spirit is vexed, as the Old Testament would say. Um, And so... These two metaphors go so closely together, the spirit and the heart, that you're going to find if you were to just take a concordance and read through the Old Testament and look at how often they're used in correlation, that you'd be, I think you'd be shocked how often those two ideas kind of coincide. But again, if you think about, I'm not going to draw my silly little man again, but if I drew my silly little man and he had a heart in his chest and he had air in his lungs, That, again, those are both the literal way of using those words, breath and heart. But in a literal way, there's a lot of overlap, right? I mean, they're both filling this chest cavity, right? They're both filling my being. And and I'm saying that, that these are the invisible parts of me that are driving me, that that are, are drawing pictures in my head, Right again, I'm using head, they're drawing pictures within me, they're driving me towards a certain behavior. So let's let's think through how the heart is used. And I think Proverbs, like we did last week, is a really good place to go to kind of look at how the word is used. And again, I mean, this is used hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. So go and, and read um, all the times that it's used, but But to look at the book of Proverbs, because this gives us very practical advice, very practical, that's not a good word, instruction for how to think about being a human being and living a human life in a way that brings glory to our Creator. So look at Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Proverbs 4, 23. Now, I think this is going to be one of the most important verses for our discussion tonight, Proverbs 4.23. The proverb writer says, keep your heart with all vil- vi- vigilance, that's a hard word to say, uh, with all vig- vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. What does it mean to keep something with vigilance? What does it mean to keep something with vigilance? What's another way of saying that? Protect, Protect. Guard. guard, watch over, absolutely. So. The the Proverbs writer says, guard your heart with all vigilance, with all diligence. Be aware, be sober, be careful. What gets into your heart, why? Yes, from your heart flow the springs of life, right? Everything in your life flows from your heart, right? Now, is that interesting? That's literally true, isn't it? I mean, your blood flows from your heart, literally, but here we're not talking about your blood. What are we talking about? And and why do you have to be so careful about what's in your heart? Because once you have knowledge of a thing, it's always there. Yes. When I was younger, I used to think that some of the experiences I had when I wasn't faithful probably helped me in some ways to talk to others. But as I've gotten older, I've realized those things I allowed in are there. Yeah. They're, they're always there. Mm. That's good. So when you allow something in, it's there, right? And it affects everything else, doesn't it? Your experiences and the things you learn and the things you know and the things you experience, they affect your behavior, right? Your heart, um, and again, we'll talk about how that's used, affects everything. And so it's its kind of like, there's almost another metaphor on top of this one, isn't there? That it's almost like the, the source of a river, right? If you trace a river back to its source, then everything downstream of that comes from that source, right? So what's going to happen if I put poison in the source of the river? All of its poison, right? It's going to taint everything. That's a good word, I think. It's going to taint everything. And so when your heart is corrupted, it taints everything right and everything that you do comes from your heart now let's think through this for just a second okay now as we kind of think through the human story of the bible first you have Adam and Eve and then you have the fall and then you have what happens after the fall after they're expelled from the garden and then of course Cain kills his brother and then kind of they populate the world and then what happens after the world is populated Yep, they become sinful. And what, what does the Bible say? What, what is said about their thinking and their heart and their mind at that time? It was evil continually, right? Um, and so they were wicked and corrupt. And so God flooded the world, destroyed the world, and then one family, right? And then after that one family, and he tells them to go and, you know, populate the world and spread out. And, you know, fill the face of the earth. Do they spread out like they're supposed to? No. no. They build something, right? They build a tower, right? They, they, they make bricks and they build this tower. So is building a tower wrong? No. What was wrong? Okay, they didn't follow directions. That's true. So Yeah, try to reach heaven. Well, 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 where did the problem originate? Pride, self, language, right, right, heart, right? It it wasn't just the, the act of taking and making a brick or stacking those bricks on top of everything. It was the fact that their hearts were evil and corrupt, defiled, they were tainted, and it tainted everything they touched, right? I mean, do you see again how the metaphor of sin, sorry, um, do you see how the, the metaphor of defilement, at least I didn't fall off the stage. Um, <laughs> Good. The, the, yeah, because then I land on you guys. Uh, the, the, the metaphor of defilement is used, especially like in Leviticus, where things like things like disease and mold, like if there was mold in a house or if somebody touched a dead body or if you touched bodily fluids now are there anything is there anything sinful about bodily fluids or about mold or diseases no no now there's literally practical reasons why if there's mold in your house you should move out and tear the house down if you can't get rid of the mold problem right because it'll kill you right so there's there's that literal sense of that but don't you think that God was trying to teach them a spiritual truth as well isn't that the way sin is that when it infects or affects the heart and we could even say the spirit, right? David prayed, give me a new heart and restore a right or renew a right, upright spirit within me. That when we sin, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not about the dirt on our hands. Jesus says it's not about the food that comes into your mouth, right? It's about what comes out of your heart. And you see that when the heart is corrupted and defiled, from this corrupted, defiled heart flows the rest of life. And so their intentions in building the tower of Babel were corrupted. And therefore the tower was corrupted and all of their work was corrupted. Men were created to work, right? People were, I don't just mean men, men and women. We we, we were created to do stuff, right? We were created to take care of God's good world. But sin came into it and it affected everything. It corrupted and infected the heart. And therefore, even the work that people did was corrupted by it, right? Because the heart was corrupted. Okay, let's look at a few passages. Proverbs 2, 1 and 2. Proverbs 2, 1 and 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with, it, with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Now, so the Proverbs writer Solomon is teaching his son, right, to, oops, I shouldn't have defiled my heart here, but, uh, but, but really it's all about learning, isn't it? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about learning. And where does learning happen? In the heart. Now, again, we tend to think that learning happens in the head, but in the Hebrew mind, in the Hebrew way of talking and writing and metaphor, the learning happens in the heart. Look at Proverbs 2 and verse 10. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Where does wisdom reside? In your heart. Wisdom, knowledge, learning. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. I'll warn you, if you're trying to read ahead, there's a couple of my references that are wrong. So um, the two after these are wrong. Uh, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Right? Trust. Where does trust reside? In the heart. You remember the, the most Important commandment that God gave to Israel? The Shema, right? Love with all your heart, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's the way, and isn't that kind of interesting? Somebody asked me the other day when we talked about the Shema, why we didn't talk about the mind. Well, because in Deuteronomy 6, the mind isn't mentioned. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus quotes the Shema, He says, with all your heart and with all your mind. Now, again, because... Jesus is probably speaking Aramaic, but it's being translated by the writer, by Matthew or the gospel writers, into Greek for a Greek-speaking audience, right? And, but, but the idea of the Shema, of heart, does that include your mind? Yeah. Yes, the way we would think of mind. It, it's all of this. So your love, your trust, your wisdom, your learning happens in your heart. Um, now, here, this is interesting. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Why? That's exactly right. Your heart is deceptive. What's that? Absolutely. Your, your heart, your mind, your inner thoughts will lead you astray. Your understanding isn't what god's understanding is right so you've got to give your heart your understanding your mind your thinking your your organ that does all of those things you've got to give it to god and say god i trust you and i'm not going to trust my own understanding okay we'll talk more about that in a minute chapter 6 not chapter 3 i apologize it wouldn't be a west worksheet if i had all the right references on (laughs) it proverbs 6 12 through 15. Yeah, I know, I know. My, my word processor should catch when I put the wrong Bible verse. Um, it's not that smart. Um, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. So your heart can be what? Perverted. Doesn't that go back to what we were talking about, about the defiled heart? That in the defiled heart, we'll, we'll write this one over here. In the defiled heart, what does the defiled or the perverted heart do? It thinks evil. It devises, right? Or thinks. What's another word for that? What are you doing when you devise something? You're planning something, right? You're, you're imagining something. You're coming up with an evil plot, right? A humorous example would be Wiley e. Coyote, right? You know, I mean, he's, he's devising something. Where does he devise those plans? He devises them in his heart. Why? Because his heart is perverted. His heart is defiled. His heart is crooked. And so is ours, right? I mean, that's ultimately what the conclusion we have to come to when we read all of Scripture. Because if we say... That the wicked person, the perverted heart, devises and thinks about evil stuff. Do you do that sometimes? Do we all think about something evil or wicked? Why? Well, it's because our heart is defiled. It's deceptive. Verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. A heart that does what? Devises wicked plans. Now, what did Jesus say when Jesus was explaining the law and how the... I know we're getting into the New Testament, but I want you to see how the New Testament writers... um, And especially Jesus as the Messiah, who is the one who ultimately gave us the law, right? I mean, he gave us the Old Testament. It came through him. It is his word. And he has the right to explain it to his people and say, this is where you missed the boat. Because he says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. You see, isn't that, what, isn't that what lust is? It's devising a wicked scheme, isn't it? Adultery implies that, that one of the two at least are married, right? And he's just probably especially talking about married men. Now here's a married man, and he's looking at a woman in order to devise a wicked plan in his heart about sleeping with her, whether or not he ever follows through on that wicked plan. Whether or not he ever follows through and goes to bed with that woman, he is thinking about it, right? It would apply also, obviously, to fornication. It would apply to any sin, right? Because this is where sin begins. It begins in the heart. And by heart, we don't just mean that he feels an attraction to her, right? We mean he's thinking about something. We mean we are thinking about something. Ready? Okay, well, and that, that's interesting, isn't it? That, that James says, and I like that phrase you used, the full-blown sin. So James says that we're tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. And then when sin conceives, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown, it brings about death. Jesus is saying here that the sin begins and it's sinful and wrong. In fact, he says it's adultery, right? When it's in here, when it's in here, and nobody else knows about it, and nobody can take you to jail, nobody can sue you, nobody can arrest you, nobody knows you're breaking the law, but you're breaking the law in your corrupt and perverted heart, right? Absolutely, Absolutely. he knows, doesn't he? And that, and that's where it was so shocking, and where religious people always have a problem, right? Is because we want to purify the cup. Right? We want to wash the hands, you know, and, and again, the Jews are taking all of that symbolism of man, I washed my hands before dinner, therefore I'm not defiled. And Jesus, you you get it at all. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, it's what comes out of your mouth because that comes from your heart your heart is the revealer of who you are it's about what's going on in your mind where are your desires where are your thoughts what plans are you devising look at chapter 12 and verse 8 so is that what the lord meant when he said to the Pharisees that you watch the outside but the inside of it. it's exactly right that's exactly right. They, they were concerned about the outward appearance because that's what everybody could see. But they were hypocrites because their heart was still as wicked as anybody's. Chapter 12 and verse 8. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. You see the parallel? You see how parallelism works? A man is commended according to his good sense, and what's the opposite of good sense? Twisted mind. And that word there mind is heart. <laughs> Isn't that interesting that it wouldn't make sense to us if they if our translators just translated it because most people when they think of mind they think of emotions, right? But this is talking about good sense. And so our translators made the decision to say, well, let's call that the mind because that's really what they're talking about, right? But we know that it all goes in one category, right? In the Old Testament, all this goes in one category, that you can have good sense in your heart, good understanding, or over here, you can have a twisted heart, right? It's defiled, it's corrupted, it's perverted, it's twisted. Chapter 13 and verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. What does that mean, hope deferred? What is that? What's that? Okay, putting it off, right? You you hoped for something and then you didn't get it and it was put off. What do we call that? Patience. Okay, it takes patience to deal with that, right? Disappointment, right? It's disappointing. And and when when you're disappointed, your heart is sick, right? It it breaks your heart, right? We that's how we say we it, it makes it makes you sick. So so sadness or disappointment is in your heart, right? So it's not just Intellect, it's not just what we would call the mind, it's also what we would call the heart. We understand this idea of a sick heart, right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life, right? You feel great and you're joyful and your heart is bursting when you get what you wanted. But when you don't get what you wanted and you have to wait for it, you know, you tell your kids tomorrow's Christmas and then they wake up and say, oh, just kidding, it's actually a week from now. I mean, that, you talk about a sick heart, you'd see a sick heart, wouldn't you? Proverbs 14.10. The heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy, right? So bitterness and joy all in the heart. Uh, Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. Okay, so the heart can ache. So again, the Hebrew way of thinking would include all the things that we say about the heart, right? You say, I have a broken heart. They understand that symbolism, right? I, my, my heart is sad. My heart is breaking. My heart is aching. Yes, absolutely. But then all the things that we kind of attribute to the brain, to the mind, they would also kind of lump into the heart. And as we talked about last week, there's a lot of overlap between what they would say was the heart and what they would say is the spirit, right? There's all kinds of overlap. Again, we try to draw these sharp lines in the sand. But what what the Bible, what God is expressing through these writers is what we experience, isn't it? That we have these thoughts in our head, we have these experiences that, that are internal, that aren't, and I, I want us to be very careful that we don't say that they're not physical. Do these things have physical ramifications and physical even, even sparks that get them going? Yes, absolutely. And And I think that's where in our Western mind, We have a tendency to disconnect the physical and what we call the spiritual. In fact, we often say that physical is the opposite of spiritual. They're not. And we even have a tendency to think that the body itself is something bad, right? Or something that we we shouldn't even really care about. In fact, the other day, and and I don't mean this derogatory because I think a lot of us would think this way. The other day, somebody was talking about racism and they said we shouldn't be racist because if we could just understand that the body is just like a vehicle that the soul is driving around and it doesn't matter because the body's going to go away and our soul is all that matters. And, and I would agree with the premise we shouldn't be racist, right? But I would say that the biblical reason we shouldn't be a racist is not because our body is just a vehicle that we're driving around. The biblical reason we shouldn't be racist is because we're all image bearers of God. We're all part of the same family that came from Adam. We, we, we were commanded by our Lord to love our neighbor as herself. There's a million reasons we shouldn't be a racist, but the idea that the body doesn't matter or isn't really connected to our spiritual self isn't really a biblical idea. Have we read anything so far? And again, I know we're going to get to the New Testament and talk about that. There are lots of things that gives us hope after the death of the body. But to kind of divide and say this is spiritual and the spiritual is all that matters and that the physical doesn't matter isn't really a biblical concept. In fact, that probably comes more from like Gnosticism than it comes from Christianity or from the biblical way of thinking. And so as we get into the Bible, we see what is true in scripture is true in our own experience, isn't it? That when you have an experience, I mean, let's think about the shooting that happened in Las Vegas. If you went through that trauma, even if you weren't shot or even hurt physically, would it be physically taxing? Would there be physical effects? Yes. I mean, if somebody is even nervous before they get up and speak or something, sometimes they they throw up, right? Isn't it interesting? Our body and our heart, meaning our mind and our thinking and our spirit that drives us, all of these things are, are so intertwined. It is us. It is our nefesh. It is our soul. Again, that doesn't mean that we don't live on after death because we know that we do and we know that there will be a resurrection where we'll have a new body. But to think that the body is, um, is kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, disposable or separate. Like it's just something, because my car isn't me. If I get in my car and I drive my car around, it's not me. I'm not connected to my car, right? You could go outside and scratch my car right now. I'm not even going to know what happened because that's not me but you scratch my body and I know what happened because that is me, right? That is me. And there's a a deep, deep, deep connection. And I think we know that. We sometimes have to try to convince ourselves that's not true. Okay, number five. Your heart, according to the Old Testament, is not only where you feel joy and sorrow, it's also where you, all these things we've talked about, have understanding, have wisdom, where obedience originates, where steadfast love and faithfulness originate, where trust comes from, where a perverted heart devises evil, uh, where disappointment is, where bitterness is, where they're felt, where joy and grief are felt. And, and again, we, I mean, if you're sad, does your chest ever hurt? It does. I mean, you can almost feel it in your literal heart, can't you? At, at, it, yeah, and it, see, there's that spirit, right? There's spirit and the heart. There, there's this, this physical connection to what we are thinking about Internally, it's all just tied together, and there's so much, an incredible amount of overlap. And I really do think that if we could get back to thinking the way that the Bible presents these truths, I think it could help us in thinking through our life, in living out our life. But, but let, me, let me delve into something. Good thing we only have two minutes left. Um, Genesis 8, 20 and 21, and Jeremiah 17, 9. So this is, we've been introducing this all along. Um, the intention of man's heart, God says, is evil from his youth. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our, our thinking. Now, you know, I used to quote that. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things. And what I meant by that usually was you shouldn't trust your feelings, right? right? right. And you've probably heard it quoted that way. Maybe you've even said that. You can't trust your feelings, but you can trust your logic, right? That's what I usually meant. You can trust your logic, but you can't trust your feelings. Feelings are deceptive, but your logic is never flawed, right? You know that's true, right? Your, Your logic is never flawed. Human beings never think logically through to the wrong conclusion, do they? Ever, that never happens, right? Um, But we know that it does, doesn't it? And we can, Freddie said a minute ago, justify our own behavior by our thinking, not just by our feeling, it's our heart. And so we have to learn to trust in the Lord. But there's something wrong at our core, our heart, our spirit, which is why as we keep reading through the New Testament, what God says in Ezekiel that his people need, what the psalmist, what David prays in Psalm 51 that he needs is a new heart is a upright spirit and so the promise of the new covenant the promise of what's going to happen when Jesus comes is that he's going to give people a new heart he's going to give people a new spirit his spirit yes exactly yes Uh, Ezekiel 36 and so even before you know the valley of the dry bones and, and we start to see that fulfilled in in the day of Pentecost right The people, Israel, restored, renewed, given a new heart, given a right spirit. And so, again, the only way that we are going to think right, feel right, talk right, and live right, is to listen to Him. The answer isn't within us. It's within Him. And That's exactly right. Let this mind be in you. And we cannot think our way out of sin. We cannot feel our way out of sin. We cannot work our way out of sin because our heart is corrupt and it defiles everything that we do. It defiles our thinking, it defiles our feeling, it defiles our work. And so you cannot work your way out of sin, you can't feel your way out of sin, you can't think your way out of sin. The only way you can be out of sin is to die and be buried and be resurrected with a new heart and a new spirit. We'll talk about that next week. Thank you guys. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit ccmcdermott.org.